0: You have to have a a group identity, because that's what unites people enough so that they can live harmoniously together. But if your group identity is too strong, then you risk engaging in fatal conflict with other groups.
1: Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clair. hi hello my little kittens out there welcome back to the lions of liberty podcast your home for great conversations about the ideas of liberty the place where little liberty kittens can come and turn into roaring lions that's right this is the 282nd episode of this program and you can find today's show notes featuring links to all sorts of interesting stuff over at lionsofliberty.com slash 282 And before I get into my interview with today's guest, a very highly requested guest that I really had an excellent, amazing, interesting, intriguing conversation with, please do tune in for it in just a minute. But first, I need to tell you about a couple things Starting with our crowdfund, our patron program, you can actually help fund this program, help us grow the show, help us cover our basic costs, editing, hosting, as well as expanding the show, advertising, advertising on other libertarian podcasts, because this is the year we really want to kick things into high gear and really grow this show to huge, huge levels. I'm excited. Are you excited? You can find out everything you need to know by heading over to lionsofliberty.com slash support. And if you want to really get a full breakdown of everything, you can also go back and listen to last episode, last Monday's show, episode number 281. Of course, we have multiple podcast here on the Lions of Liberty podcast feed. You got this program every Monday, Electric Liberty Land every Wednesday, and John Odermatt's Felony Friday every single Friday, looking at the broken criminal justice system. And you can help us support all of this stuff again by heading over to lionsofliberty.com slash support. We also have some perks for people that join our Liberty Pride at different levels, including some free t-shirts at certain levels. You will also get discounts on the Lions of Liberty store. We have a store where we sell all sorts of Merchandise now, starting with our t shirt line. You can find that at lionsofliberty.store. We'll eventually have some koozies up there and some other items as well. We really do truly appreciate all the support out there from you guys, any way you can help. My guest today is a clinical psychologist and professor of psychology. He's taught at Harvard and is currently tenured at the University of Toronto. He is the author of Maps of Meaning, the Architecture of Beliefs, exploring the meanings of popular religions and myths and how they correspond with what modern neuropsychology tells us about the human brain. He has recently made headlines for refusing to use prescribed transgender pronouns in his classroom at the University of Toronto, which has caused a major backlash up north. I am pleased to welcome Dr. Jordan Peterson. Dr. Peterson, are you ready to roar? It's
0: hard to tell. We'll have to see how it goes.
1: All right. Well, I've, I've heard you speak quite a bit. I've seen a lot of your videos and interviews and I'm pretty sure you are. At least you've got the spirit from, from what I've seen. And, you know, before we get into some of your recent conflicts with social justice warriors up there in Canada and and a lot of the things you've made headlines about, you know, I'd like to, our audience to get to know you uh, and your work really a little bit better. So why don't you just tell us a bit about yourself and and how you first became interested in psychology and how that led you to publishing Maps of Meaning and, and your work at looking at the correlation between, you know, popular religions and myths and, you know, modern neuroscience and what we've learned about the human brain.
0: Well, I became interested in psychology mostly because I was interested in motivation for conflict, for war, and for the commission of atrocity in the name of belief. I went to university first and studied political science and literature, but by the time I was through my three-year degree, which gave me a major in political science, I realized that the standard economic explanations for conflict and for ideological belief didn't really seem right to me. So I started to assess it from a psychological perspective instead. And I was interested in the role that belief played in people's lives, why it was so important to people, why if they had no beliefs, they seemed to be lost. And why if they became too rigid in their beliefs that they became dangerous to other people. You know, like committed ideologues tend to be dangerous. And so I started writing about that in 1985, and I published the first book. I'm just finishing a second right now, but I I published my first book in 1999, which was an analysis of the role that beliefs played in regulating human emotion, basically. So... That's my background I've been studying totalitarianism and and how societies degenerate into totalitarianism for a very long time
1: it's really fascinating that that you first came into this field of study through just I guess maybe sort of a fascination or an interest in why humans have conflict I mean if we just look at the last century alone, we've seen hundreds of millions of humans die simply from having conflicts with each other and I have to think that there are might be better ways to solve our our, our differences our issues or whatever than conflict and yet we see it happen over and over and over again.
0: Well, the only the there's only three states of being, you know, there's slavery, tyranny, those are both forms of conflict or negotiation. And negotiation depends on freedom of speech, you have to be able to talk to people, if you're not going to fight with them, it's it's or capitulate to them. It's as simple as that. And so whenever I see anything that's inappropriately placing a limit on freedom of expression, then that concerns me because that's the fundamental mechanism by which people formulate problems and, and uh, move towards something approximating a consensus.
1: Yeah, and that's, that ties directly into, you know, a lot of, again, what you've made some headlines about recently. And that's an excellent point about free speech because the way I see humans interacting, there are, like I said, there are only two ways we can interact. We can be violent towards one another or we can talk to one another, whether that's trade, negotiation, or what have you. And when you try to shut down one of those, in your case, uh, free speech or trying to regulate the manner of speaking, when you try to shut that down, it's almost inevitable that we're going to see the other one, that we're going to see violence arise. Uh, so why don't we just get into exactly how this came about. What is the this law, Canada's, I think it's called Bill C-16, and, and how does that tie into the, the issues that you've had kind of refusing to use these? I think there's something like, I don't know the exact number, 70-something new pronouns that you're supposed to use, uh, depending on how people classify their genders. And I guess they also sort of seem to claim through this that gender is completely separate from your biology. It's basically subjective and whatever you choose it to be or, or even not be. Maybe you can expand on that a bit.
0: Well, it might be worth pointing out that you have laws like that already in the United States. So in New York State, for example, where I think this has gone farther than anywhere else, I believe there are now 31 different genders that are legally recognized and it isn't exactly clear what pronouns you're required to use in order to specify those genders, but it's certainly the case that you can be you can find yourself in legal hot water of quite a serious type if you refuse to use the pronoun pronouns that someone, I would say, demands. So it's, it's certainly not something that's limited to Canada. Uh, my objection, most particularly, was one that you already alluded to, which was the insistence by the people who have crafted this sort of legislation that there's no relationship between biological sex and gender, that they vary independently and that they're only social constructs and I believe that to be factually untrue, as well as ideologically motivated. And so in Canada now, that concept of the independence of biological sex, gender identity, gender expression, which is basically your fashion choices and, and uh, sexual proclivity, that's all socially constructed and, and completely independent, not only of one another, but also of biology. And I think that's a dreadful error uh, it's certainly something that's being taught to kids at an ever increasing rate. Uh, I believe that it poses a danger to the to the freedom of expression of biologists who certainly don't buy that kind of claim. And then there's the problem that was more germane to me, which was these words these not not so much calling a transsexual like a a man who's converted to being a woman calling that person, she, or someone who's done the opposite, he, it seems to me that you default to whatever seems simplest in the situation. I think pretty much everyone does that. But these made up words like Z ze and Zer and and the, the large variety of alternatives seem to be quite self-evidently to be the con- constructions of radical postmodern ideologues. And I'm not an admirer of that ideology or it's nesting inside of Neo-Marxism. I think it's an abhorrent ideology. It's counterproductive in almost every possible way. And I don't want to use the language generated by adherence to that philosophy. And so that was my fundamental objection. It had very little to do with the transgender community per se. That just happened. You know, the problem is, is that when you object to this sort of thing, you always have to do it in somewhat arbitrary manner because the claim is always on the part of people who are expanding this kind of agenda that they're doing it for the good of everyone and that if you oppose it you're some kind of heartless monster and so you have to be willing to put up with those sorts of accusations if you're going to object to the continual expansion of this kind of policy and legislation but i'm not using those words so i I really didn't as far as i could tell I didn't really have much, I wouldn't say choice exactly. I had a choice between either going along and saying it was okay or saying that I wasn't going to do it. And that caused a tremendous amount of, it caused an incredible amount of noise, I would say
1: it's hard for me to comprehend where a lot of these terms even come from because if I wasn't researching you and this podcast because because so many of my listeners have mentioned wanting to have you on the show that's the first time I heard some of these terms I never heard Z before I've never seen maybe maybe I live in a bubble but I live in Los Angeles it's a fairly fairly open area when it comes to that kind of thing I've never heard human beings in real life um, you probably have though of people that actually want these terms to be used I mean I don't even know how somebody would would know to use this term in the first place let alone police their own business as as this oh LC-16 well if you,
0: well if if you're on a university campus you might and this hasn't happened at the University of Toronto by the way but it has happened at other university campuses people may be wearing buttons that tell you to ask them what pronouns they want to be addressed by and so that the theory is, is that you're supposed to remember their name and their pronouns whatever their pronouns happen to be it's I think there's a narcissistic element to it too because It's not reasonable for people to demand that other people alter their language to reaffirm some hypothetical element of their identity. I don't believe that that's reasonable in the least. I I also can't see how that's going to be particularly good for people who are trying to find a place for themselves in society to surround themselves with that sort of demands, especially when they're, you know, heavy legal penalties, at least in principle, for not for not agreeing to it. But for me, it was more, well, first, that I'm not going to use the language of postmodern neo-Marxists. And second, that I think that the government mandating speech content is, is uh, I think it's a terrible thing. The Supreme Court in the United States has already ruled on this. I think it was back in, I think it was in the 40s, although I'm not precisely certain of that, that compelled speech is unconstitutional. And so I think the New York law is probably unconstitutional under American law. Uh, I doubt if it's unconstitutional under Canadian law, although it might be. Uh, It could be. But there'd be a a tremendous court battle before anything like that was ever established.
1: On that subject, I'm not obviously nearly as familiar with the Canadian Constitution or Canadian law. Is there a a written in protection for free speech in Canada as there is in the United States?
0: Yeah, but it's not as powerful In, in the U.S. It's 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 certainly regarded as, I mean, there's always an implicit hierarchy of rights, right? Because every right can't be equal because they conflict. And so over time, or even in the written constitution, there's an implied or explicit hierarchy of of rights. And in the US, freedom of speech is way near the top. In Canada, I think freedom of expression is in danger and in many places in the West, freedom of expression is in danger of being subjugated to well to to, to other values like like equality or equity even. And that that's also often introduced under the guise of anti discrimination legislation, which is what Bill C sixteen purports to be, even though it it does imply in the bill that if you refuse to, if you discriminate, which includes not using these pronouns, that you can be prosecuted under the hate speech provisions of the Canadian Criminal Code. So the penalties can be quite harsh. And people who've been objecting to what I'm saying, say that I'm overstating the danger of the legislation. But it's, I've talked to a variety of lawyers. And of course, there are different opinions on this. But it's not clear by any stretch of the imagination that I'm overstating the danger. And the fact that The university sent me two letters asking me to stop making the sorts of comments that I'm making with you, for example, right now, indicates that the university lawyers certainly agreed with my interpretation of the legislation.
1: You know, it's almost... Kind of it's baffling to me when I think about it, even if we just get out of the transgender stuff, how far things like this could lead. I mean, what if some people you know, some people are born as a male but they feel they're a female. Other people might say, well, I, I was born a human, but I actually believe I'm the reincarnation of, of the uh, god Moloch. And you have to refer to me as that god Moloch, or else you're not respecting who I am as an individual. And then there's the, the transgender issue might be the current incarnation of this, and obviously what I just said is absurd, but a lot of these pronouns <laughs> seem equally absurd to me. And I'm really interested. Well, it's
0: not, it's not completely absurd because there are people who call themselves other kins and they claim non-human identity and they have their own pronouns. And if you look at the ever expanding LGBT acronym, it includes Q plus in some formulations. And if I remember correctly, the Q plus includes the other kins who certainly claim identity that's beyond the normal, let's call it, or the traditional.
1: Is that what I've seen where some people actually feel they're, let's say, an otter born in a human's body or some other kind of animal? Is that what you're referring to?
0: Yes, that's what I'm referring to. And or then, sometimes an alien or or an elf or right. something. So, you know, it's a, it's a fantasy identity. But the law in, in Ontario, for example, the law states that the gender identity of a person can lie on the male to female spectrum anywhere, or more than one place simultaneously, or not on that spectrum at all. And so I presume that what that means is that identities other than male and female, or male or female, or any of those mixtures, also have to be recognized. The the, the legislation and the associated policies are written in a very murky and unclear manner. but as far as I can tell, the problem that you just identified, which is the infinite potential multiplication of terms of address is is instantiated right into the law. I don't really believe that when these policies were formulated, that the people who formulated them had any idea that there would all of a sudden be, I think there have been lists of up to 70 different gender identities now. I don't believe that they assumed that there was going to be 70 gender identities or that hypothetically there might be a pronoun associated with each of them. But that's what happened very, very rapidly.
1: Can you make this connection? You've mentioned a couple times how you see this sort of this type of legislation, this type of enforcement of using certain terms, connected to a culture or a philosophy of neo-Marxism. Can you kind of briefly describe exactly what that is? And and well, I what would that say
0: well, I would say more specifically that it's a consequence of postmodernism, okay, and that postmodernism emerged out of Marxism and is still embedded in it, and the postmodernists whose Fundamental spokesperson, so to speak, would have been Jacques Derrida, were French radicals from the late 1960s who turned their hand to identity politics after it became intellectually untenable to support radical left, the kind of radical left policies that had produced such a catastrophe in the Soviet Union. So by the mid 70s, say, there was no excuse anymore for intellectuals to give Marxist doctrines any credence because of of all the evidence that emerged about just exactly how terrible things were both in China and the Soviet Union, and so the postmodernists, recognizing that the working class in the West was never going to rise up and throw off their bourgeois overlords, decided to play a bit of a sleight of hand with the terminology and instead of representing the West as an oppressive battleground where the working class was continually subjugated, decided that it was an oppressive battleground where minorities of however that might be defined were oppressively subjugated. Same story, different and same perpetrators, roughly speaking, but slightly different victims. And at the same time, they also launched an all out assault on the ideas upon which the West was predicated, like the idea of logic, for example regarding that only as a tool that oppressive Caucasian male patriarchs were using to oppress and steal from the rest of the world, including the minorities in their own culture. And so an intellectual war was launched predicated on the idea that the only reason that a culture exists is to privilege the people who The culture is working for and to oppress everyone else. So in the postmodern world, the entire political landscape is a a nightmare of competing interest groups, none of whom have anything other than their power claims to base their dialogue on, and between whom conversation is actually impossible, which is part of the reason that the social justice warrior types don't like to debate with or talk to Those who hold different viewpoints, they don't believe that, they don't believe in logic, and they don't believe that people can reach any kind of accord through conversation. Now, you might, and they also don't believe that there's anything to identity except power claims.
1: Yeah, I mean, I saw one video of you speaking at uh, at the University of Toronto, I believe it was, and you were trying to just sort of rationally address this issue around a crowd of people, but they were not listening to your words and trying to respond to them. They were just trying to shout you down. And I think that's an example of that.
0: Yeah. Well, when you hear that that people have been disinvited to university campuses and that a dialogue, any dialogue has been deemed impossible, you can think about that from one perspective as a kind of intellectual cowardice. But I, I actually think I think that's true to some degree, but I think it's more realistic to note that it's actually part and parcel of the doctrine. You don't let people who have viewpoints different from you speak because all they're doing is reinforcing their oppressive claims to power and you can't reach an agreement with them through dialogue anyway. So why bother having them speak or, or why listen to them or why discuss anything with them? Now, you might ask, if the postmodernists don't believe in in identity if they don't believe in truth outside of language which is also the case why they would bother regarding ethnic identity or sexual identity or sexual preference identity as valid forms of of what what would you call it well of identity around which to organize discourse the answer to that is well that's why you have to understand that it's also nested inside marxism Because in the postmodern world, there's no such thing as a genuine identity. There's just power claims. But in the Marxist world, you're supposed to privilege the power claims of the oppressed. And so hypothetically, that's what the Marxist postmodernists are doing. And-
1: they're answering oppression with oppression because you know if their their call for ending the oppression of say transgenders who feel sort of marginalized by the not people who don't use the terms they prefer, they're actually oppressing you by, by for- marginalizing you and forcing you to use certain terms. But uh, at the same time, they'll they'll just say, well, yeah, but you know, Dr. Jordan Peterson, he's a, a privileged white male, so he should be marginalized for that reason.
0: Yeah, well, they're also, you know, they also buy the group guilt claim, which I think is one of the most pernicious things about this postmodern Marxism. Is that as a member of a category, you are responsible for all the sins of that category personally, and that's an appalling doctrine because it, it first of all, it removes the presumption of, of innocence, and second, it means that you can be held personally responsible for. Things that were done by people who you have no relationship to whatsoever except your hypothetical say racial or sexual similarities it's an absolutely murderous doctrine and but it's that it's the doctrine that that governs a tremendous amount of political discourse, especially on campuses. You'd know more about this if you were in the universities, and you might say, well. You know who cares what goes on in the universities? But that's foolish because what's going on in the universities will be going on in standard society within a. It'll be going on
1: in in your politics and your government before you know it. Oh yes, and that
0: absolutely, and that's already happening far more than people realize.
1: Well, Doctor Peterson, there are a few other topics I want to dive into with you, but first I need to take a minute out to give a quick word to today's sponsor. Hey, guys. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there. There's a lot of competition for your ears, and it's hard to find time to listen to everything. But there's one show that I make sure to carve out the time to listen to every single day, and that's the Jason Stapleton program. Jason has been a guest on this show before, and he really does a fantastic job with his show, where he breaks down current events from a libertarian perspective Five days per week. That's right, five days per week. I don't know how he does it, but it's not just a podcast. It's also a live daily studio show, which broadcasts over at JasonStapleton.com. You can, of course, find his podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, wherever you listen to this podcast. You should have no problem finding Jason Stapleton as well. And the great thing about Jason's show is is that it's so professionally done that you have no concerns about sharing it with your parents, your friends, your family. You're not going to get any of that Alex Jones conspiracy stuff. You're just going to get straightforward talk about libertarian ideals in our rapidly changing world. Be sure to check out the Jason Stapleton program. Dr. Peterson, I want, I want to pivot a little bit while we have some time left here to a recent video you did. It was called uh, Your New Year's Message to the World. And now this might not make total sense out of context, to everybody listening. So I'll post a link to this in the show notes for today's program. But one thing you said in that in that video, you said it is only the individual who suffers. The group does not suffer, which kind of plays into what you were just talking about. That when, when you're going to punish a group, it, it's not groups that suffer. It's individuals who end up suffering. But but can you expand on that statement and exactly what how that relates to the message you're trying to send?
0: Well, one of the things that I was trying to work through when I started thinking through these ideas was, well, there was a paradox and the paradox that I encountered was that, well, people have to have an identity. They have to have a group identity. That's their culture, let's say, because without group identity, you can't cooperate with people or compete with them peacefully or organize your perceptions and desires in accordance with their actions. You see, what you want is to be surrounded by people who presume many of the same things that you presume, so that when you interact with them, and with, when they interact with you, you can both get what you want. It's like, imagine that you're on a hockey team and you're all playing hockey. You can predict what someone's going to do if you pass them the puck. There's, there's moves you can make that everyone understands and that everyone can get behind, and so you can all work cooperatively towards a mutually desirable goal. And as long as people are acting out the same thing, then their desires can be aligned and they can be productive and peaceful together. So you have to have a a group identity because that's what unites people enough so that they can live harmoniously together. But if your group identity is too strong, then you risk engaging in fatal conflict with other groups. So that's a problem you know, the European economic community was put together to address the problems that emerged out of nationalism. Well, but the other problem is, is that if you, if you get rid of your group identity so that the proclivity for conflict disappears, then you have, you have nowhere to go. You have nothing's, you have no identity. You don't know where you are, where you're going. There's no standards of value. And so then you get nihilistic and chaotic and depressed. So it's sort of you know, nationalist danger on the one hand and radical nihilism and disintegration on the other. And those are bad options. And so it was at that point that I started to understand the Western insistence on development of the individual. Because you want to be a group member, but you want to be more than a group member. You also want to be the conscience of your group. You want to be the eyes and the voice of your group you know, the one that updates it and and keeps it on track. And so the group should be subject to the sovereignty of the individual, roughly speaking, and that is the situation in the West. And it's the right solution as far as I'm concerned. So in that New Year's Eve message, I was, I sent out a a letter, I guess you might call it, to drive those points home, that if you want to make a difference in a world that's either becoming too parochial and nationalistic or too chaotic and nihilistic, then what you have to do is strengthen your own character. And I actually, along with my colleagues, produced actually a series of exercises. You can find them at the selfauthoring.com site. One of them is called Future Authoring, and it helps people make a plan for the next three to five years. And we've tried that on about 7,000 university students now. And and it really works well on non-western ethnic minority men by the way who are often doing worse than any other student group in universities it it raises their grade point average and their and decreases their dropout rate until they're up with the high performing groups but it helps people make a plan for the next 3 to 5 years and a posit, develop a positive vision for their future and also a counter vision to like a, a form of personal hell that you want to stay away from by by keeping your bad habits and and character weaknesses under control the new year's eve message was an attempt to let people know that the most important thing they could do if they wanted to help the world stay properly balanced was to strengthen their own individual characters
1: i think that's a really fascinating approach because you know we often hear about a conflict, a conflict between the individual and the group mentalities. But your perspective is really that the best way for, for groups to function is for the strengthening of the individuals within that group. If the individuals within the groups are all, I guess, maybe have taken. you actually have a quote in there towards the end of that video. You say, we need to take responsibility instead of incessantly insisting on our rights. You know, if we're focusing on ourselves and focusing on on improving ourselves, our group, the group uh, that we interact with, the humans we interact with are going to naturally all function much better.
0: Yes. Well, I mean, one of the one of the things that I try to teach my students is that, you know, they're all going to face the death of their parents, for example. And you have to decide at some point whether you're going to be the person crying in a corner so bitterly that you're of no use to anyone. Or if you're the person who, in a situation like that, is going to be able to help with the funeral arrangements and is going to be able a shoulder that other people can cry on and someone who's useful in a in a state of crisis. And that's a much better goal. And it's a good example because, of course, that's a very tragic situation. And people have reasons to be extraordinarily upset. But human beings can be very, very tough and resilient. And that's what you want to build yourself into so that you're useful in a crisis. And if people and many people are useful in a crisis, but the more useful people are and the more responsibility they take for their own lives, then the less tragedy is going to be able to destroy us. And that's that's the proper pathway as far as I'm concerned. I, I think one of the ways that you can tell whether someone is reliable as a political personage is whether or not, if they're always talking about their rights and they never mention responsibilities, then you know that they're basically acting in a parasitical manner because every right that every person has is bought at the expense of someone else's responsibility. In fact, the two things are every right is someone else's responsibility. It's as simple as that. And so if all you ever do is talk about your rights, all you are is demanding, all you're doing is demanding from other people a continual extension of their responsibility to you. And to me, that's a very, very, it's a very, very second rate And ultimately unsustainable game. You also make people very angry if you do that for any length of time, because there's no reciprocity in it.
1: There's just demands and taking and and more taking of rights until, and, and really the individuals that are having their rights essentially infringed upon to provide for others, there's no end to that essentially, as long as that philosophy that that everyone else owes someone else in a certain group something. There's really no end to it. Dr. Peterson, there's one more thing I do want to kind of tie in here and touch on before we sign off here. And really, I think you have one of the most fascinating takes on religion that I've honestly ever heard. Uh, as a man of, of science, you obviously try to look at things from a, a scientific point of view. You're also a man of religion. And I heard you on the Joe Rogan podcast, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you essentially said that religion is true in the sense that the stories of religion are true to what human nature is, what, what man the, the way that man should act. And obviously you can expand on this and if if you think I've got your that, that wrong in any way, but I really do find that fascinating. So could you just touch on that briefly before we sign off here on, on why as a man of science you actually embrace religion as opposed to rejecting it?
0: Well think about it think about it this way. First of all, I mean although Sam Harris would definitely differ from me on this point, I don't believe that you can derive an ought from an is and so scientific knowledge isn't sufficient to orient people in life. You need another process that orients you in life. And that's basically the process of value. And you orient yourself in life with stories that are predicated on values, which is why stories have morals. That's one way of thinking about it. But you know, if you take a great novel, you might say, well, that's not true because it's fiction, but that's actually not accurate. It's it's meta true. It's more than true. And the reason it's more than true is because it collects all sorts of human experiences and then gets rid of the ones that aren't informative. So in a great novel is going to be about a character who has many, many diverse human traits, perhaps more than any particular one person might have, and then who acts them out in a way that's maximally interesting. And so you could say, well, you have to watch a hundred people in order to derive the material for one great story. So then you might say, well, then you have to listen to a hundred great stories before you could derive one proto-myth. And then you'd have to listen to a hundred proto-myths before you could derive a story with real religious power. And so the the process of storytelling that culminates in great religious stories is a process of distillation. And it takes the most vital parts of each normal person's life and extracts out of them higher order structures of guidance. Like you can think about the story of Moses in the desert, for example, which is a, a very great archetypal story. And it was one that was used that was very attractive to enslaved black people in the United States, because the notion that there are people who are enslaved and who have to escape tyranny and go through a period of chaos, which is the desert, and then come to somewhere better, that's, that's everyone's story. I mean, that's what happens to you every time one of your dreams fails, you know, something falls apart that, that, that was inappropriate, and wasn't serving you well, which is why it failed, and then you end up chaotic and confused and wandering around in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and if you're lucky, you end up learning something important in that process and and coming to a better place. And that's the eternal story of human beings. And the idea that that's not true is predicated on a very narrow definition of truth, one that excludes the fact that it's a necessity for people to orient themselves within structures of value, that we have to think that some things we, and act as if some things are better than other things. And great religious stories are the culmination, the the accumulation of human meditation on what's great and what's worth doing, meditations that have lasted literally tens of thousands of years. And we risk throwing that all away because we confuse those stories with bad scientific fact, and you know even the evangelicals, for example, who insist upon the literal truth of Christi- of 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 say the stories in the old testament they're they're missing the point because those stories are they're not literally true they're true in a way that transcends literal truth they're they're more than literal truth but they're not very good philosophers, so they don't understand that truth comes in different forms and that there are different truths for different purposes. And that doesn't mean that any old thing is true and it doesn't lead you down the road to moral relativism. It's a, it, it's not that at all.
1: So you could almost compare, I mean, ancient religious stories that brought people together and, and taught them certain values to modern tales, whether it's like, Say the Hunger Games or the Harry Potter series Uh, stories like that. I can also say, well, no, this did not. This is not true in the sense that this did not occur. Harry Potter is not real. Katniss Everdeen is not real. Uh, But you can learn higher level truths by by reading these stories and and by learning lessons from them.
0: Yeah, well, they're not they're not literally true. I mean, the Harry Potter example is a really good one because the author of that series has a great mythological imagination, and her story is extraordinarily archetypal. I mean, for example, in the second movie, Harry Potter basically acts out the story of St. George and the Virgin, which is a very old story. It 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 it's it's certainly one of the oldest stories that we know. If you trace it back, it, it it God only knows how far back it goes. I think it goes back in the form that it's acted out, literally for millions of years. But you know, that's a fairly what contentious claim. Mm-hmm. But you know harry fights a snake who turns people to stone when they look at it and he rescues a virgin from the dragon essentially down underneath the castle and the dragon bites him but he's cured by a phoenix which is a symbol of death and rebirth i mean it's it's mythological right to the core and if it wasn't people wouldn't understand it there wouldn't be children all over the world reading 350 page books in 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 absolute desperation because they need the information that's encoded within the stories. And so people get their mythology one way or another. That's why superhero movies are so popular now too, is that they're filling a void that that the, that the the death of classical stories, that's one way of thinking about it, has left behind. And Star Wars is, I mean, George Lucas was influenced by Joseph Campbell, who was a student of Carl Jung's, you know, some of this stuff isn't even accidental. Well,
1: Dr. Peterson, I, I find this stuff so fascinating. We could probably spend seven or eight or nine or 12 hours talking about this stuff, and maybe we'll do another show sometime in the future. But I really do appreciate you coming on and bringing your perspective on, on these issues. Uh, before I let you go, why don't I just give you a chance to uh, plug anything you've got going on. I know you mentioned your self-authoring pr- program, so uh, feel free to you know p- drive home how people can find that and uh, feel free to mention anything else you've got in the works.
0: Well, this, the self-authoring program, helps people write an autobiography and analyze their personality faults and virtues and plan a future three to five years down the road. Those are all separate exercises and they're basically guides to doing that kind of writing. And writing is really good for you because it forces you to think things through and it also changes the way that you perceive and act. It's the most effective way of doing that perhaps that we know. Which isn't much more than to say that intense thinking can change the way that you see and act. But we have very nicely documented scientific evidence that doing the future authoring program helps people become more productive and stick with difficult things. And we've showed that most particularly among university students. I guess the other thing I could mention for people is that I have a lot of videos on these sorts of topics at Jordan Peterson Videos, which is my YouTube channel and a podcast called the Jordan Peterson podcast, which was the simplest name I could come up with for it. And so if people are interested in, well, partly the political issues that we discussed, but also the background issues, I have many, many lectures on YouTube that people seem to be happy about watching. I get 100 letters a day, I would say, and most of them are about the, not about the political videos, but about the other content that I've been putting online that deals with more of these uh, mythological and, and narrative issues. Well, that's that, the that's great that thing discussed. about the
1: world we live in, because, now, I mean, what used to, you know, maybe even 15 years ago would have been completely confined to you giving a lecture in a classroom. Now, with very, fairly minimal effort, you can take that same lecture and reach literally hundreds of thousands of people around yeah, the world. Yeah, it's amazing. So it's truly really an amazing, amazing time.
0: It is. It is absolutely amazing. And it, it's been remarkable to to learn how to use YouTube and and to see that I'm getting letters from people all over the world you know, who've been unable to attend university for one reason or another. And and they're all they are doing is watching the lectures because they want to learn. It's really cool.
1: Absolutely. And ultimately, that's the same reason I do this show from the back of my house here in Los Angeles, which I never could have reached people all over the globe just sitting here in my house right now informing people about the work of you and so many others out there. So I think it's a fantastic time we live in and it would be just just crazy not to take advantage of it. So, Dr. Peterson, I thank you so much again for coming on the program and I hope to see a lot more from you in the future. Yep. Bye bye. Well, folks, I really hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Jordan Peterson. And this is a guy I'm really glad that my listeners out there turned me on to his work, because I got to tell you, even outside of the social justice warrior stuff, which I know is what initially captured the attention of a lot of libertarians, uh, the man has really done some fascinating work, work that I've become exposed to in doing research for this interview. I, I particularly find his take on religion very fascinating. And I, I do really want to encourage people to look further into the work of Dr. Jordan Peterson. Of course, check out his website. I'll, I'll post links to everything over at lionsofliberty.com 282, the show notes for this program. All right, guys, and before we get to some more letters of liberty from the great listeners out there, I want to briefly touch once again on our new crowdfunding platform. I'm going to try not to hammer on this too much, but hey, if you're going to beg for money, well you gotta actually beg a little bit sometimes and like I've mentioned before and on last episode of the program a week ago episode 281 where we really got into the details of this we're not really doing this to make money off of trust me we've spent thousands and thousands of dollars of our own money over the past three years in order to get to this point but now we're really looking to grow the program advertise on other podcasts uh, really pump out some Facebook advertising really take things to another level because we know we've got a show that a lot of people out there enjoy we've gotten a lot of great feedback from our fans we have of course so much activity over in our private Facebook group, the Lions of Liberty Forum. We encourage you all to go ahead, search Lions of Liberty Forum in your Facebook feed and find that. But now you can help us support the show. You'll get all sorts of kickbacks, some exclusive audio that only people that are subscribers will be able to get if you subscribe at the $5 level or higher. That makes you a member of the Lions Pride, in which case you'll get access to exclusive audio. You'll get discounts at our store and some other perks for some higher levels. So please do go over to Alliance of dot com slash support and check out how you can help the show. And I want to take a minute out now as well to thank our first couple of subscribers. That's right. We have Blaine Stancil, a longtime fan of the show. And Blaine actually sent us some beers once from his brewing company that we drank, uh, I think, in actually multiple episodes of Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor. And they were quite delicious, if I do recall. So please give a check out to the Rough Tail Brewing Company out there in Oklahoma, if you're ever in the area. We also got another member of the Pride in Justin Zielinski. Thank you, Justin, for signing on up. Now, if you didn't hear your name just now, oh, there's a couple reasons. One might be that you did sign up before I recorded this and I didn't read your name because I don't know your name because we actually have a few signups where we don't really have the person's name. Uh, You know, I know Podbean allows you to create a username, and we can't always tell the actual human's name from that. So if you did sign up under a name that's not yours and you want to get a shout-out, you want me to recognize you, let me know. Hit me up in the forum. Or shoot me an email, mark at M-A-R-C at lionsofliberty.com. And if you don't get an email after signing up within a couple days, also reach out to me then too, because you know one of the guys that signed up here actually has an, an email that doesn't seem to that actually bounces back, but he's sending us money. So whoever you are, we thank you for the money, but we want to be able to contact you and make sure we connect with you for all the free goodies coming out. So if you don't hear from us, if you sign up, or if you haven't been mentioned on the show, there probably is a reason. It's probably because I don't really know who, exactly who you are. Also, if you signed up this week and didn't hear your name, there might be another reason. It's because I'm recording this a few days before the show airs. So you might have signed up after I recorded this, but I will try to give a shout out to everybody who signs up and becomes a member of the Pride because we're so excited to have you guys helping us grow this program. Another way I try to get you guys involved is by answering some Letters of Liberty. We're going to do that right now. This is the new Letters of Liberty mail-back song. Mark tried to write one himself but it somehow just felt wrong. So to keep him from further embarrassing all of the lions of liberty the free market for better in the form of Liberty Letters. So let's get to it. This intro is much too long. All right. How about that? We got a new Letters of Liberty theme song. You don't have to be subject to my torturous voice anymore, at least not leading into the mailbag. I want to thank my man Dan Smots for that one. You can check out his musical project, Smots, that's S M O T Z at www.smots.com. Dan also designed our t shirt line at the aforementioned lionsofliberty.store. So, really, a guy who's been helping us out, helping us grow this show. Because, like I said, guys, this show is yours. It will grow, it will become whatever you want it to become. All right. And now to dive into the first mailbag question. This one comes from, and I may mess up this name, Eliata Quinn. Eliata Quinn. I probably messed it up. I definitely did since I used a couple of different versions. But either way, Miss Quinn asks, where does taking money or services from the government fit in with libertarian principles? Assuming taxation is coercive, are you stealing if you accept something that has been stolen from someone else? What if some of it was also stolen from you? Should you try to get it back? We all want to get the most back from our tax return, right? And she goes on and on here, and it's a, it's, it's a good rant. I don't need to read it all, but you get the idea. Uh, she's basically struggling with this idea of accepting uh, any kind of funds from the government. She actually later uses the example from her own life that, you know, she pays to go to the public pool, but she won't let her kids eat the free lunch provided by the summer food service program. But then she goes over to the public park. She also goes to a state-funded music class, but she doesn't like the food. <laughs> so she doesn't know where to draw the line here. So I'm here to help. And I know a lot of libertarians struggle with this concept. You know, how much can I take from the government? Can I use the roads? Am I still a libertarian if I use the roads, if I use the public schools? But I got to say, this is one area where I'm kind of a fiscal liberal, really, to be honest with you. If you're a libertarian or even if you're not a libertarian and you disagree with the system, you disagree with the coercive taxes taken from you. You don't believe this is the way society should be structured, but you're forced to pay the taxes. You're forced into the system. You can change it. You can try to change it politically. Many of you are, or you're doing it in some way or another, whether it's just having different thoughts about what should go on with your money. But the fact is you are forced into the system. And, and as far as I'm concerned, the people that are really leeching on the on the system are not even are not your average person using a public pool, your average person who's just driving to school or or using a, a some kind of public service. That's not really who's leeching on this system. The people that are really leeching on this system are the mega corporations, the military industrial complex, the people that get the real welfare from the federal government. The absolute last people I'm concerned about getting, quote, too much from the government, are your average man on the street and certainly not your average libertarian-leaning individual. As far as I'm concerned, you should use any public service that you pay into or any public service that's provided that you know makes sense for you to use. I see no reason to shy away from this stuff. And look, not every public service is evil, you know? A lot of them shouldn't be funded that way. We can say all of them probably shouldn't be funded in, in the way they're funded since all of our systems really are coercive. But, you know, you're not a terrible person if you're going and using the public park. I don't think we should we should stress out about this kind of thing. These are not the biggest crimes going on in our society today. Now, if you're, say, you know, you're a libertarian, but uh, you have a job with the DEA, and you're a libertarian during the day, and at night you're going on raids, busting into people's houses, well, okay, then I think that's a little bit more of a conflict of interest, and I might encourage you to reevaluate uh, the use of your time and your, quote, welfare from the government at that point. But, you know, if you're just living a normal life, going about your day, use away. Take your tax refunds. Take your child credit. Use the public schools. Use the public park. Go for it, guys, because you're not the problem. And when things change, it's going to be because of you guys, and and you using these public services are not going to be the reason for societal collapse or the economic collapse. I say use away. My next question comes from James Rensell. On a scale of 1 to 10, how stoked would you be if California succeeds in secession now this is an interesting question because i actually do live in california uh, obviously I'm a libertarian, I believe in self-determination and all this kind of thing, so you think naturally I would be in favor of secession. And I do think it's interesting, anyway at least, that people in California are now talking about secession. Uh, what most people might not realize, there's actually been a secessionist movement in California for a long time. The secessionist movement in California up till now has been certain counties, mostly in Northern California, the, in, in the Jefferson area, that actually want to secede and create their own state, the state of Jefferson, away from the rest of California, but now there's actually a movement in California to remove the whole state from the United States, and I think that movement is really largely just an anti-Trump, knee-jerk reaction to things, but it is definitely interesting that people on the left are now looking into this idea of secession, whereas a year or two ago, if if you mentioned it, if you said Texas wants to secede, they would say, well, that's racist. We already decided on, on secession years ago, 150 years ago with the Civil War. You can't secede. If you secede, the federal government's going to stop you, and and they should, but now many of these same people will are now gleefully advocating for secession, so I don't want to discourage that. At the same time, though, my take, personally... I don't think I would be for California seceding. I, I get why people would be and why would a, a state seceding would would excite people. But as someone who lives here, who is a resident of California, honestly, I think the Bill of Rights and the U.S. Constitution is the only reason I can own a firearm at all in this state. And I know there's a, a lot of people will criticize me for even living here. But guess what? We all got to live somewhere if we're living in the United States. I can criticize you for all living in the United States if you think it's such a tyranny here. You know, The fact is we all live somewhere. We all live where it makes sense for us based on our relationships relationships, our careers, and our lifestyle. And for me, Los Angeles is where my career is, it's where the woman I'm with is, and it's where my life is. It's where I want to be. Uh, I'm here in spite of really the many of the political beliefs of many of the people that live in this state. But if this state seceded from the union, I'm almost positive guns will be banned tomorrow, immediately. I really think that the Second Amendment is the only thing that holds back the state of California from completely banning guns altogether. Uh, so, for that reason, no. I'm actually glad we have the United States Constitution that guarantees this Second Amendment right. And that might be a controversial position. Yes, generally, I think people should you know, work towards more localized societies. But does, is, is this really a libertarian secession anyway? I, I mean, is secession into greater tyranny really a, a good step? And I'm not sure it is. And from my standpoint, as someone who lives in California, as a libertarian who wants to continue living in California— I actually kind of fear the prospects of seceding from the union for the reasons I've stated. So I hope that answers your question, James. And that's going to do it this week. I am loading up more questions in the mailbag. I've got a few on the back burner, but it's been a long show. It's been an in-depth interview with Dr. Jordan Peterson, so I want to give you guys some time to digest all of this. And please, if you want to send me more Letters of Liberty, go over and join the Lions of Liberty Forum, our private group on Facebook, or always feel free to shoot me an email, markmarc at lionsofliberty.com. You can even tweet it to us, at Lions of Liberty, however you like. Be sure to tune in to all the great programming the rest of this week. You've got Brian McWilliams with Electric Liberty Land, your weekly dose of comedy, culture and liberty this coming Wednesday, as well as John Odermatt's weekly look at the broken criminal justice system this coming Friday on Felony Friday. He's actually going to have Chris Ann Hall on this coming Friday, so be sure not to miss that. Until next time, folks, live long and live free.